this morning and just just very aware that we enter a world that is sort of caught up in fear, um, especially of the coronavirus and just all the different things that are sort of piling through our inboxes and in conversations and just what really stood out to me is Psalm 18.2 this week. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And God, in this moment, as there is just so much fear, just in the air we breathe as we're reading about coronavirus, we're worried about people we love and our nation and our world. God, we just say, God, we are a people who don't want to be afraid. God, we want to be a people who trust in you, a people who take refuge in you. So Jesus, as we gather this morning, we just pray that you would come. You would be here in this place. You would give us comfort and assurance. God, we want to be wise, but we do not want to be a people who are afraid. So God, come. Be with us this morning. Speak into our daily life. Speak into, God, all the ways in which we're trying to follow you that we might be found faithful. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's great to have you guys this morning. Uh, My name is Tony. I have the the privilege of being here on staff at Wellspring. I want to welcome you if you're new or visiting, checking us out. Uh, If you are a kid and want to hang out with some other kids, uh, Miss Cassie's over there um, and Miss Alicia's over there. Uh, Do we have a, who's the fourth and fifth grade? All right, David, there we go, right there. Fourth and fifth grade too, if you want to hang want to welcome you guys this morning. So we're sort of traveling through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, the series is called Messy Church, Merciful God. Now this week, uh, as I was preparing for the message, I was surprised to learn that like even cultural icons go through experiences of judgment and evaluation. Like it's kind of unavoidable. I read in uh, 1919, Walt Disney, he was fired from the Kansas City Star because he lacked imagination and had no good ideas. Elvis, after one of his first performances, was told by the guy in head of production, maybe you should be a truck driver. I think you'd be better at that. Oprah was working for a Baltimore uh, TV news syndicate and she was fired because they thought she just had, she had no career in TV. Steven Spielberg, Rejected three times for U- from USC's film school. We all know what happened with him. Michael Jordan, cut from his high school basketball team because he just wasn't good enough. What stood out to me this week is that even these cultural icons, people that have accomplished so much, get to these moments right, where they're judged, where they're evaluated and found wanting. And I think if we did a quick survey around the room, most of us have had a moment where we were judged by a coworker or a boss 
a spouse, a friend, maybe some deluge on social media. Uh, but we can all, I think, relate to this idea of being judged and evaluated. I remember I once had a supervisor uh, and he, the way he described his management style was like a gardener. But what he liked to do is he would tear up. He liked to go in as a gardener and what he said is, what I like to do is I like to rip up all the plants to see what's there. And I thought, as someone who likes to garden, that is actually how you kill a garden. <laughs> That's not weeding. That is unhelpful. Anyway, it was not very helpful as a supervisor either. Because he'd come in and every time I'd feel anxious. Because I'd have projects I was working on, I was saying, and he'd come in and he'd kind of be like, well, what about this? Pull it up. What about this? And so I started feeling that I would get defensive. Right? Because he'd come in, I'd feel anxious, I'd feel defensive. I remember we got to our, my one-year review. And he said, Tony, you're just really arrogant. And that might have been true. Probably was. But what he said was this. I'm older. You're younger. You should listen to everything I say and do what I tell you. To say the least, that didn't go so well. I didn't respond super well in that situation. And I think we can relate to this, right? I bet you if we were to start telling stories of people feeling judged and being evaluated, we could literally go on for hours. And we could probably even identify different ways that we would respond. Some of us, we fight. We feel threatened and then we just like lash out. Rarely does that really work well. Usually it just makes things worse. Some of us in that moment where someone is judging or evaluating us, what we do is we just conform. Right? We just like, oh, I'm just going to kind of do what they say, even if we know it's wrong. And then what happens often in that moment is that bitterness starts to develop. Part of us dies in that moment. Because now we're having to sort of conform to this other person, even if we know we're not being true to ourselves or God's invitation or whatever. Some of us, we just kind of emotionally and relationally withdraw. But if you kind of actually like pay attention to what really happens in that moment is what you do is you emotionally and relationally withdraw, but your anxiety, your bitterness, your frustration usually comes out somewhere. So usually what happens is you withdraw from this person and you start connecting with other people and then gossiping about that person because you need a way to deal with those emotions. So whether we fight, we conform, or we withdraw, usually it doesn't go all that well. This morning what I want to do is I want to look at Paul's uh, letter to the Corinthians chapter 4 because I actually think he has a fair amount of wisdom to offer us. A bit of context, right? So Paul is called by God to plant churches in Turkey and in Asia, uh, in Greece and parts of Europe. He's called by God. He often gets into conflict wherever he goes. Uh, this is what happens when he enter, enters into Corinth, right? So now he gets into Corinth and almost immediately the Jewish community there gathers the Roman governor and it's like, hey, you got to do something about this Paul guy. But the Roman governor actually passes on sort of persecuting Paul, and he actually gives Paul this season of 18 months where he really gets to invest in the Corinthians. Now, just a word here, because I think sometimes when we think of someone like coming in and teaching about God, we either go one of two ways. We either think sort of teaching about God is about beliefs, right? So, Paul's coming in there and he's saying, think this, think this, think this, right? This is what you think in your context, now think this. And there's a lot of truth there, right? Belief is connected to trust and what we think and what we believe. 
But also, Paul is trying to make sure that they are also focused on how they behave, right? And sometimes when we come into church, we don't just think about beliefs. We also think about, I need to be a good person, right? I need to behave this way. And actually, what we see in the life of Jesus and Paul is that Paul is concerned with both of those things. He's concerned about in whom we trust and how that affects our actions, right? If you were to do a quick survey of Jesus's life, right? Jesus is a disciple or a, a rabbi, who gathers disciples in this area of Galilee. He picks 12 guys. And there's this idea in the ancient world that if you are a rabbi and you have disciples, what they do is they follow in the dust of their rabbi. And the idea is when the rabbi's walking along, he's wearing sandals. And what happens is every step he takes, it flicks up a little dust and it's supposed to get on the legs of the people following him. So there's this old proverb, right? Follow in the dust of your rabbi and be covered in the dust of his feet. As it flicks up from his sandals that it might cover their legs. Right? This isn't just mind transfer. This isn't theology school. They're with Jesus all the time learning from him. Not just what to think, but also how to live. Paul, he's discipled by a rabbi named Gamaliel. He gets this. So when he comes into Corinth, he's teaching the Corinthians, not just, hey, this is who Jesus is. These are the right answers to the theology questions. But also, this is how we behave as Christians, as followers of Jesus. So Paul gives himself with profound energy for 18 months to start this church, to form these people in Corinth. Then he leaves. What does he do, right? He goes to plant other churches in Asia and Ephesus and other places. And what we see is that within three years, Paul has shifted from mentor, teacher, founder, rabbi to one who is now judged by the Corinthians. The Greek word anakrino uh, is this word of to judge, to evaluate, to examine, to investigate, to critique. So Paul goes from, right, the one teaching them how to think, what does it mean to believe in Jesus, to what does it mean to practice the way of Jesus, to now they're looking at Paul and they're evaluating his teaching and his way of life. Richard Hayes has a commentary in 1 Corinthians. He says this, like callers to a radio talk show, they have nothing better to do than rate Paul's performance and compare him to other preachers. Paul will say in chapter 4 this word puffed up or arrogant. The Greek word is physiomai in verses 6, 18, and 19. It's the same word Paul uses in chapter 8, verse 1. He writes, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. This word simply can mean to inflate, right? So their egos have been sort of inflated like a big balloon. They think they're smart. They're well-read. They get it now. Therefore, they have no need for Paul, right? They've outgrown him. And this is how Paul responds to their judgment. If you're following along in one of the black ESV Bible, ESV Bibles, it's page 896. This is verses 1 through 5. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. 
Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. All right, so to unpack this, um, how does Paul respond to the Corinthian judgment? How does Paul navigate this? First, Paul says, right, he's grounded in his calling. Verse 1, how should they regard him? Right? This word uh, in Greek, logizomai, is to keep a mental record, to hold a view. It's sort of an accounting term. So he's like, hey guys, log this. This is how you should see me. And he's not a sophist speaker, right? In Corinth, you have these speakers that are coming in and they're not, they don't care about truth. They care about winning arguments. These guys are out there and they're, they're trying to get patrons. They're trying to build a following. But Paul doesn't approach it that way. First and foremost, right? If you go back to the very first line of this letter that Paul wrote, verse 1-1, Paul says, I am an apostle. That's how Paul self-identifies. He is one sent by God to teach about Jesus, right? His primary, primary identity to the Corinthians is not whether they like him or dislike him. It's about trying to live according to the calling that God has given him. In verse 4-1, he says this, that he is a servant and a steward of the mysteries of God. This word, steward, uh, oikonomos, is basically where you get the word economics. It's law and house. So who sets the law of the house? And the way it's used contextually in the first century is often a wealthy landowner, someone would appoint a slave to be the oikonomos of the house. And they got a significant amount of delegated authority to implement how to rule and run the house. So if you sort of fast forward into our context, it's kind of like a foreman in charge of a large project or maybe like the chief of staff in the White House, right? Paul writes in verse two, the steward is required, right? This, this word in Greek is zito, ziteo, which is to seek. So Paul is saying, right, this steward, this person, right, they're looking for someone, they're seeking after someone who is what? Faithful. So Paul's reminding the Corinthians at the very beginning right, that he is a steward that has delegated authority from God who is sent by God to share the gospel with the Corinthians, right? One who's teaching them about Jesus, but not just beliefs, but how to follow him, right? To walk in the dust of their rabbi's feet. Second, he says that this above calling then makes their judgment trivial, to Paul. And he says a very small thing in verse 3. And interestingly, Paul doesn't say, you know, in their judgment, it's a small thing to me because guess what, guys? I've looked at my own behavior. I've looked at myself and I feel good about it. Right? That's what we often do in our context. Someone judges us and then we say, you know what? I feel really good about what I did. I'm proud of it. So now I'm going to dismiss what they just said uh, as irrelevant or uh, not applicable. But it's interesting. Paul doesn't say that, does he? He says, how do I get acquitted, right? So this word, uh, dikeo, is to make righteous. This is the word to be justified in Greek. 
The thing is, it's in this tense. Uh, it's called a perfect tense, which means a past action that has present implications. So what he's saying is, I didn't one day say, I'm good. And therefore, for the rest of all time, he is acquitted. He's good because at that present moment, he felt good about his action. Therefore, it's good for all time. He doesn't say that. What he says is the ultimate judge of his contact is not, conduct is not him, but it's God. Right? It is the Lord who judges. Verse 4. Not the Corinthians, not even Paul. It's God. Right? And Paul is able to navigate the judgment of the Corinthians because he is not the end stop and they aren't, but God is. And so he can say, all right, God, am I doing what I'm supposed to do here? Am I fulfilling the calling that you have given me or am I sidestepping it? Now, when we get into verse 5, what we see is that Paul's focus is also not on the present as much as is it on, is it, is on the future. Right? Paul is not just looking at all the present things and trying to say, did I dot my, all my, uh, you dot I's, right? Cross T's. There you go. But one day, right, God is going to return. And he's going to disclose, Corinthians, your heart, and he's going to disclose my heart. And we'll get to see. I have a feeling, Corinthians, you're a little puffed up. And when God comes, that little bubble you have is going to get popped. Because the way you are living life is not in a line with God or his heart. For God will one day come and he'll determine, right, who is worthy of commendation. Epanos is a Greek word that means to receive praise. So he will be the one who determines whether we deserve praise or not, right? He's grounding himself in his calling. He's grounding himself in God and God's judgment, not his own. Now, when we get to verse 6, Paul continues to kind of unpack this, and he gives them one principle that I think he's taught them before about how he stays grounded in God, how he stays grounded in his calling. And he says this, that you may learn by us, right? By our example, walk in the dust of your rabbi, that you may learn by us, by our example, not to go beyond what is written, right? And this is not an Old Testament quote. This is likely a slogan that is used as Paul teaches. He's saying, hey, don't go beyond what is written. That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Richard Hayes has this great quote again in his First Corinthians commentary. He gathers up all the Old Testament citations that Paul does in First Corinthians, and he says this, the cumulative force of these citations is unmistakable. The witness of the scriptures places a strict limit on human pride and calls for trust in God alone. Right, so how does, how does Paul navigate their judgment? Right, he leans into the scriptures so that he remembers his calling, who God is, and that God will be the ultimate judge of things. See, the Corinthians get in trouble because they're all puffed up. They're trusting in themselves and they're taking themselves way too seriously and they're not taking God seriously enough. Now what's clear, I think, at this point is that Paul is not telling them something they don't know. Like, he's taught them these things. They've just forgotten. So he's trying to remind them, hey guys, it's not just about thinking the right thoughts or picking the best preachers. There's actually a way of life that's connected to following Jesus. 
So what does he do? In 8 through 13, he develops now a contrast between the way he lives and the way they are living. There's a bit of irony in the way he writes this. This is how he says it. Already, you have all you want. Already, you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And what would you reign so that we might share the rule with you? For I think that God has exhibited us as, a possible, as apostles, as lost of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. You are held in honor. We in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and we thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now, in order to unpack what's going on here, certainly there's some irony, but there's actually a really interesting historical context here that it's really easy to miss if you're not familiar. So in verses 8 through 9, you'll notice Paul talks about being a spectacle. He talks about them being like conquering kings. He talks about how he is sort of in the end of the line, right? We are last. And he's drawing from a well-known practice called Roman triumph. So a victorious Roman general or king, after they conquered a space, a place, what they would do is they would do this big parade going through town. Right? And the conquering general, the king, the leader would be at the front, kind of like strutting his stuff on a really nice horse or chariot. Like, oh yeah, you know, they're rocking it. And what they would have is they would have then all of the conquered leaders behind. Humiliated, beat up, run down. And they would walk them through town until they executed them, right? They were sentenced to death. They were a spectacle being humiliated, sentenced to death, and then when they arrived at the end of the parade, they would kill them. So Paul, he's kind of taking this well-known practice and he's applying it to the situation in Corinth. The Corinthians imagine themselves as those kings at the front and Paul is sort of this defeated, wimpy guy at the back. He's like, man, this guy... You know, you go around and look at the sophists, they have a brand. They have books getting published. They have Facebook pages. They have Instagram. They are rocking it. They have publishers, right? They have, they have crowds that are following them everywhere, shouting their, shouting their name. Paul, where's all your stuff? You're not very polished. Right? They are strutting out thinking, we've rocked it. Paul, in contrast, is trying to say, actually, no, no, God is actually the king leading that parade. And guess what this God did to defeat evil? He was humiliated. He died on a cross. He was tortured. Our king, the one leading the parade, is the one who died on a cross. He's not the conquering uh, emperor like Caesar. And Paul points to Jesus and says, that's who I follow. That's the king I follow. What about you guys? 
Right? Paul has taught them that following Jesus is not just to sort of replicate the life of the people around you. It's not just about belief, it's also about practice. Right? And the cross in this cultural moment following Jesus kind of chafes with the way Corinthians do life. So much so that Paul calls himself a fool for Christ. Right? Mori, where we get the word moron. Right? In Greek. I'm a moron out here. And I think we get some of these contrasts. You don't need to be a first century Corinthian to like get like, oh yeah, there's some choices here. Who here would rather be dishonored than honored? Anyone? Who here, if given the choice, would rather be weak versus strong? Mm, you know. Who here would rather be wear nice clothes and have a home versus shabby clothes and be homeless? I'll give you a second to decide. Right? Honored is this word endoxized, to be gloried, right? Who, who wouldn't rather get a little glory than be dishonored? I think we get this. But I think we also have to be careful here because we don't also want to say that Paul's saying every Christian, if you're going to be faithful, needs to be homeless and hated. Right? That's not the alternative. Right? Paul has wealthy patrons that fund what he's doing. There's a wealthy patron who offers his house for the church at Corinth to meet in. Paul is not saying, hey guys, give it all away and really make everyone mad around you. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying like, hey guys, you're judging and critiquing me because you look at these sophists who are winning arguments, but they don't care about the truth. Paul's like, I'd rather lose the argument and make sure that I'm focused on the truth. Paul's like, hey, I am more concerned about you guys worshiping God than following me and my brand in the world. So he's pushing on them, trying to create a contrast between maybe what they're used to in their cultural moment and what it looks like to be faithful to Jesus. Now, if we step back for a second, I think we can also appreciate, like, imagine Paul in this setting. Imagine yourself in this setting. This group of people that you have led is now turning on you. They're judging you. And I just think we need to be honest in these moments and just say, there's a lot of pressure towards conformity. Paul's smart. Paul is super educated. Paul could have gone into Corinth. He could have created a brand. He could have got this great following. He probably could have made a lot of money getting patrons to support him and building sort of the, you know, Paul Corinth brand that he could then franchise out all over the Greco-Roman world. He could have done that, but he didn't. Right? Instead, he doesn't conform to the judgment of the Corinthians to ingratiate himself. Right? He takes Jesus as his model and he looks for God for direction. I also want to say though, while Paul is super challenging in chapter 4, no question, even though the Corinthians are judging him, he still remains relationally and emotionally engaged. Verse 14, he calls the Corinthians beloved children. He says, I don't want to shame you. I want to admonish you. Right? This is instruct, warn, Right? Even though the Corinthians are judging him, 
And he doesn't give up on them. He doesn't just say, I'm done with you guys. He doesn't write them off. He doesn't check out. Verse 15, he says that he is their father through the gospel. Verse 16, imitate me. Don't follow all the trends around you. Follow me just as I follow Jesus. Just as I walk in the dust of the rabbi, walk in the dust of my feet. This is why in verse 17, he sends Timothy to Corinth. Someone he loves to help walk with the Corinthians to say, hey guys, listen to Timothy. He's going to try and help you to imitate our way so that you can be faithful to Jesus. Verse 21, right? Like every father in the ancient world, he's given the rod of correction. Right? Which fathers were expected to use to drive away folly from the heart of the immature. Now, this week, as I was sort of processing this, I was talking with uh, one of the therapists in our body, and she's had a fair amount of experience working with parents and kids uh, in therapy. And one of the things she explained to me is that often parenting models work best when there's someone who is in charge and also affectionate. Right? In charge, creating structure. Like, if, there's, if it's chaos, it's not safe. But if there's no affection, it also can be just bullying and mean. Paul, as their father, is able to sort of walk this line between being in charge, but also being affectionate. But he cares enough about the Corinthians that he doesn't bail or write them off, but he continues to engage. The word parenting in Latin actually comes from the verb to bring forth. Right? Paul is a parent to the Corinthians and he wants to bring forth faithfulness out of them as someone who loves them and cares for them. Because if you think about it, right, the Corinthians, they don't have a New Testament. It hasn't been written yet. Literally, they, when they arrive, when they get that letter on day one, you know, they're getting part of the New Testament that we're studying today. They don't have 2,000 years of theology and practice to build on. Every single one of them has been a follower of Jesus for less than three years. They're just trying to figure it out. And the truth is, right, you need leaders, you need mentors, you need guides when you're trying to figure out how to practice the way of Jesus. I bet you if we did a quick survey of this room, like almost every single one of us would say, yeah, I had a pastor or a parent or a friend or a mentor that helped me along the way. Because we can't just do it alone. So how does Paul navigate the judgment of the Corinthians? One, right, he grounds it in his own calling. Right? Two, he looks to Jesus. He doesn't just focus on the present, right, but he focuses on the future. He looks at the scriptures and he stays relationally engaged. Right? As we lean into everyday life, I just want to focus on three areas in particular. One, this connection between judgment and calling. So Paul, in one way, is able to actually maintain a sense of equilibrium amidst the judgment of the Corinthians because he knows that he is called by God. And because he knows he is called, he has a foundation to stand on, right, when the wind of adversity arises. And the truth is, like, we are all called. The thing is, often in sort of church world, we think only like pastors and missionaries are called. Everyone else, we just like, we just wing it, you know? That's that's actually not a biblical view of vocation or calling. 
calling is primarily to the person of Jesus, and then we all have secondary callings. And there's three major areas. One, work. This can be paid or unpaid. This could be in the home or out of the home. This could be pre-retirement or after retirement. We all have a work that we are called to by Jesus. Two, this relates to marriage and singleness and relationships. We are called, some of us into marriage, some of us into singleness. Right? We are called into parenting of bio kids, parenting of adopted kids, or not parenting even though we are married and in a, in a marriage relationship. We can be called in all kinds of ways. The thing is, my experience is all too often is we disconnect those areas of our life from our spiritual life. Right? We, we go about our lives, we get married, we have a job, right? We become parents and we sort of do all this independent of any conversation, any relationship with Jesus. What is his invitation to us? So we get to this point without a lot of grounding in the invitation of God. So that when judgment comes, we are like an unanchored ship in a stormy sea. Paul says in Colossians 3, 3.23, whatever you do, right, do it for the Lord and not for men. Not for people. Right? And this applies to our work. This applies to our relationships and marriage and in singleness. This applies to our parenting, whether it's of bio kids, adopted kids, or we don't have kids. Right? In all those areas, we are sort of, God, what is your invitation to me? I, just, I think I would invite us. Like if we want to navigate judgment and evaluation in life, I would invite you, take some time this week. Talk to Jesus about, one, your work. Right? And that could be in retirement, out of retirement. That could be paid, unpaid. It doesn't really matter. Whether you're raising children in your home, that is your work. What does Jesus have to say to you? In your marriage or your singleness, what does Jesus have to say to you? In your parenting, bio kids, adopted kids, you want kids but you don't have any yet. What does Jesus have to say to you? Our calling is super important when we try and navigate judgment in the world. Without a sense of God's invitation, it's really easy to get blown by the opinions of people. Two, uh, the second one is about other people's judgment and God. See, when Paul faces the judgment of the Corinthians, rather than focusing on their judgment, right, he turns to God the one whom he's trying to please and honor with his life. Too often though, I think, at least for me, I know this, like it's easy to bow before the expectations of others. Someone wants you to do something, you're like, oh, okay, you know. It's so easy to conform rather than focus on God's invitation to us. What does God care? What is God's opinion about this? The truth is, the way of Jesus is always going to clash in some way with the culture around us. And because of that, there are going to be moments when people in the culture around us are going to push back on what we think, what we believe, and what we do. I was reading a book uh, this week called The Coddling of the American Mind. Uh, and there's this quote in it that really stood out to me. They wrote this, Social media has channeled partisan passions into the creation of a call-out culture. 
Anyone can be publicly shamed for saying something well-intentioned that someone else interprets uncharitably. Basically, we are creating a culture, especially, uh, I think, among younger people, but I think it's, this is true across the board, where you can be called out by simply disagreeing with someone, whether or not there's merit to what you have to say or not. This whole book is sort of leaning into this. The truth is, right, there's a new Pharisaism developing in our culture right now. There's a checklist of beliefs and practices that you have to check. And if you don't, you are labeled either uh, immoral, uh, ignorant, or worse. So what do we do in a cultural moment when we can be deemed immoral or backwards for practicing the way of Jesus? I think we might be really tempted to conform to the expectations of the culture around us rather than actually look to God to guide our actions. I just wonder if it might be worth taking a moment this week just to identify who are three people in your life that you are tempted to follow other than Jesus. I bet you almost all of us could think of at least a couple their opinions, their perspectives, they weigh so heavily on you that you kind of bend in towards them. I would also invite you to think of what are two, one or two beliefs or practices that you're willing to kind of cast to the side, even though they are thoroughly biblical, because you're pretty sure that if you ever vocalize them, that people will judge or evaluate you. I think it's important to pay attention to these things because these are the things that then affect us later on when we are judged. And now we've sort of, we haven't developed a practice of actually centering ourselves in the person of Jesus and identifying the temptations around us. Lastly, I just want to talk about judgment and the way of Jesus. Paul does not write off the Corinthians. He doesn't emotionally withdraw. He doesn't dismiss them. He engaged with them. And I want to be really clear about this. Paul did not just make this up. This is exactly what Jesus does. For you and for me. Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still enemies with God, while we were still sinners, Jesus what? He dies for us. Jesus does not write off the world. Jesus doesn't say, man, you guys are so messed up. I'm done with you. He checks in. He becomes a human being. He enters the mess of our world and our lives in order to love us and restore us back to God and his heart and his way in the world. This is what Paul does for the Corinthians. Paul writes in verses 12 and 13, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. When Paul is dishonored by the judgment of the Corinthians, right, when they say, we're the king parading you behind us like our conquered foe, what does he do? He reaches out to them. 
He emotionally engages, relationally engages. He tries like a father to love them back to the way and practice of Jesus. Paul does not give up on them. And I guess for us, I would just invite us to think, I don't know, can you think of a couple people right now that you are tempted to just sort of be like, I'm done with these people. Can you identify a couple people that right now you are gossiping about? Because you you don't want to deal with them. So your anxiety and frustration is now leaking into other relationships. So rather than talking to them, you're actually just besmearing their name behind their back. That is not the way of Jesus. I want to invite the worship team up. Because as we enter worship, I just think judgment actually gets at a lot of heart stuff, doesn't it? It gets out of the way, it gets at some of the ways that we are tempted to look at other people rather than Jesus for our example. It gets at the way we are willing to treat people poorly, withdraw for them because they have treated us poorly. And I think, you know, if you have a super complex situation there, like there are reasons to emotionally or with, with emotionally and relationally withdraw. There are situations where that is appropriate and healthy. Totally. But that is not the norm in all of our relationships. So I just want to invite us as we consider what does it look like to handle judgment as we trust in Jesus. I just want to pray for us as we enter into worship. God, in this moment, we just come before you and we say that we are weak and broken creatures. And like the Corinthians, we can be tempted by the culture around us to mimic it rather than you. God, we can be so easily just dislocate like so much of our life from practicing your way, whether it's our work or our marriage or our parenting. God, we can just sort of somehow in the confusion of everyday life, just sort of disconnect those things. And God, we say, we want to stop that. And God, we can so easily look to other people's opinions rather than yours to be our guide and our compass and our true north. God, would you speak to us Would you guide us? Just as Paul writes to the Corinthians, speak to us. God, we know that we are wayward children and we need your intervention. Just as Paul intervened on the Corinthians, we ask that you would speak to us today. As your beloved children, you are our father. And even if that communication comes with a a bit of a rod of correction, God, we just say we submit to it. We want to be convicted. We want our hearts to turn towards you. Please come, Holy Spirit. Speak to us this morning that we might glorify you in all that we do.